to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on September 14th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk with Editor-in-Chief Maria DiCristina and Issue Editor Michael Moyer about our annual single-topic issue of the magazine. Plus, we'll test your knowledge of some recent science in the news. Every September, we publish a single-topic issue. Last year's choice helped dictate this year's. Mariette, Michael, and I will explain further. We chatted in the recording studio at the magazine's offices. So we have this issue that uh, might scare some people because it might look like it's our last issue because we have this big red cover and in large white letters it says, The End. Right, and after we just finished celebrating our 165th anniversary last month, maybe people were wondering about that. But really what it is is the beginning, the beginning of Scientific American's latest single-topic issue. Which is all about endings. Which is all about endings our, and, and sort of deals with our eternal fascination with the topic of endings. You know, we it's one of those, Steve, you can't look, you can't look away feelings. And it seemed to us a really interesting bookend to do after last year when we had done a single topic issue on origins. And in fact, this issue had been sort of suggested many times over the last 10 years, originally as the death issue, which (laughs) people naturally sort of shied away from. But by expanding it to just endings, it became somewhat more palatable. and, And actually, it it winds up covering a lot of really interesting territory. It, it really does. I mean, I think when we, when we kiddingly called it the death issue in inter, internal editorial conversations, some of us really might have liked to focus more on that aspect of human endings. But then as we looked at it more, we realized it was such a big opportunity, a, a larger, much larger well to mine of what endings mean for us in various areas that Scientific American covers. And obviously, we do cover biology. So there is an article on why, you know, why can't we live forever, for instance. But we cover so many other things, including, you know, astrophysics and chemistry and so on. And so this issue takes a look at endings across a wide array of categories, and not just endings, but how endings can in turn be a start of something new. We have an article that uh, talks about the what happens after the end, after the end of your particular existence, what happens to your body. And you, in your letter from the editor, you talk about having read Mary Roach's book, Stiff, which is uh, a long explication on the subject. And we just had Mary on talking about her Mars book. But... Uh, in in our shorter version, we go through skeletally, if you will, you know, what happens to your body after you die. You want to talk about that for sure. just a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things, you know, that Scientific American does so well is explain how things work or what happens, various processes. And so we thought it might be interesting to take a look at what happens to the human body after you die. Now, I know... You, Mary's book, Mary Roach's wonderful book, looks at what happens to cadavers in general. So not just how decomposition works, but where do they go to medical schools and what happens there and what happens in various scenarios. But we looked at what happens if you take a human body and you leave it be, a human body that has, has um, you know, died, a person has died, and then what what happens with the biology then? And there were four states of decomposition for the human body. 
and they're very clearly kind of defined. They range a little bit in amounts of time, and we know a lot about this because of the the body farm at Tennessee, where they've been studying this for many years now. Yeah, if anybody wants to donate their body to science, in addition to medical schools, you can you can do so by donating to a forensic decomposition farm where they they bury your body. Maybe in a shallow grave, maybe in a deep one, maybe they just leave it out where animals can get at it. I know that sounds pretty nasty for, you know, what might happen to you, but it's really useful for forensic researchers to identify all the various stages of of decomp. Well, and one of the not to get derailed on this, but one of the very useful purposes there is when you're trying to solve a crime, let's say. And a body is found. You want to know, based on the condition of the body, how long ago the crime was committed. This is where that sort of information comes from. So, so first, what happens? The first week or so, about for day one to six, is the fresh state after a body dies. And and what happens in the fresh state is basically when respiration ends, when we stop breathing and we start stop clearing toxins from cells. All those processes that were ongoing, and the cells don't know it yet, right? The rest of the body, the heart has stopped, the brain is stopping, but the cells still have some chemistry that's going on after the body has has died. And the first thing that that begins to happen is um, carbon dioxide builds up inside the body, and with it, there is a rise in acidity. That acidity rise contributes to cellular membranes decaying and then collapsing, and then digestive enzymes that were already always present in the cells begin to slosh around the body, and it begins a state of what's called self-digestion. So the body begins to liquefy inside, rather literally. The muscles stiffen. Everybody's heard of rigor mortis, and the body begins to cool by about 0.8 degrees Celsius per hour or so. And red blood cells settle to the bottom, which is why if you've seen somebody who um, who has died even after just an hour or so, you'll see very pale on top and kind of a deeper redder color at, near where the, um, you know, let's say the hand or the body meets the ground. Yeah, it's it's very predictable, these this sequence of events. It is. And then it moves on to a stage called the bloat stage, which lasts from the first week to about three weeks, roughly, where those cellular processes continue and the gases that the cells create as they continue their you know, digesting and chemical processes begin to build up in the body and the body starts to bloat. The third stage is called active decay. And this is from days about 24 to 50. This is where insects and other animals may continue the process of removal of tissue from the body. And if it's exposed to air, the body will tend to be kind of basic in its chemistry, more to the base side. If it's buried, it will be more acidic. And last is the so-called dry stage, which is stage four, from days 51 to 64 or so, where tissue is all removed and the bones then begin their own process of cellular decay and decomposition. And the bones can either just sort of become powder or if you're in the right kind of environment, you can permineralize the bone, replace some of uh, the the biological, the, the biochemical uh, entities in the bone with actual minerals, and, and then you get your, your good fossils that might be unearthed thousands or millions of years later. You know, you, you mentioned insects. Many years ago, I, I did an article for us on forensic entomology, the use of insects in in CSI. And uh, I'll never forget what this one expert in the field said, that uh, basically you will start to be the home for insects from the minute 
this is how he put it, the meat hits the sod. So as soon as, as soon as you keel over, insects will start to work on you. Well, this is their job, right, as nature's reprocessors. So thank goodness they do that job, and we don't have a bunch of piled up bodies around. So uh, that's the end of us in the, as individuals. Let's bring Michael Moyer in here. And you were the editor, really, for this whole issue. That's right. And we have a section on things that deserve to end. Good riddance. Why don't we discuss a few of these things? Uh, like, for example, the space shuttle, which is ending, we really think it deserves to end. Yeah. With the, our good riddance section, we looked at a lot of um, human inventions that we thought um, you know, their, their time has come and gone. And one of the things we had is the space shuttle. And, of course, we all love the space shuttle in a lot of ways. Um, historic heroic feats, certainly it's done. We wouldn't have a lot of things such as the ISS or the Hubble Space Telescope up there. But it was designed, you know, um, more than three decades ago uh, to be a cheap, reliable pickup truck into space. And it never really got to be cheap or reliable. And so now we have our entire space program is based on this low Earth orbit platform um, that costs, uh, you know, anywhere from a half a billion dollars and up per launch. And it's in a lot of ways held us back from doing some of the more ambitious exploratory programs that we'd like to do. And it is ending. And right now we're not really sure what's going to replace it. Yeah, that's right. In um I believe now it's March of next year uh, will be its final flight uh, up to the International Space Station. Right now there is much hubbub going on in Congress and the like. Uh, uh, President Obama has a plan to end what was to be the replacement program, the Constellation program, um, and replace a lot of the functions with the private space uh, entrepreneurs, um, and we would uh, kind of help those those people, give them seed money, and then buy tickets to get up to the International Space Station. NASA would go back to being kind of more of a, a research and development organization, trying to find the next way really to get to Mars, because we still have no idea how we're going to get people to Mars and back. Well, you know, the really great idea is not to bother to bring them back, but Sure, sure. Right. We have uh, we have um, staff members here who would volunteer to be on that trip. Right. Not not myself, but but other staff I know. members. George Musser wants to go. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, we, I've I've heard you know send very fit old people to Mars who know that it's a one way trip. It really cuts down on on your technological necessities. Absolutely. So, another thing that we really need to end. This is such an ironic kind of thing to me is the dropped phone calls. We have – I mean I marvel on a daily basis. I really do at my iPhone and all the different – I mean I watch television on it. I play Scrabble on it with people in other parts of the country. I listen to satellite radio through the iPhone. But I can't make a freaking phone call on it. Yeah, it's it's terrible. A friend of mine just got an iPhone for the first time, had an old clamshell phone, and the first thing I said to her was, "Well, welcome to the future." You know, this is this is how it works. This is what we were all supposed to have in the palm of our hands. Except, of course, you can't make a phone call on it. I, you know, I I I don't really use the phone anymore. I text everyone, but I and when I do try and call my mother, for instance. You know, every ten minutes, I I have to call her back again, and you know, it's it's a problem. 
drop calls are really something that that needs to go away. And the solution that a lot of companies have um, come up with now, or what they call femto cells, is that you can, for a fee of about a hundred dollars, um, something like this, have basically a little cell tower in your house or apartment, and it connects to your um, your high speed internet, and you have very very good coverage um, with that. Of course. You know, do you want to pay another hundred bucks just so you can make a phone call with your three hundred dollar appliance? Right, you could just get a landline <laughs> yeah, if you're going to yeah. make calls from home. Yeah, yeah, I, but I, um, I don't have a landline. I know many people who don't have a landline anymore. That's really true, and you can tell. I mean, as somebody who sometimes records the interviews on the telephone, the the lack of landlines is becoming a real issue because the audio quality is just not as good when you're on the wireless. Femto sells for everybody. Another great thing to get rid of, humans behind the wheel of, of vehicles, of, of motor vehicles. When I drive, because, of course, I am an excellent driver, I marvel at the incompetence of all the humans who are driving the other vehicles on the road. It, it's a truism that everyone else is a terrible, terrible driver. And, and Steve, of course, um, you grew up in New York City. I Really, New York City drivers, uh, people who were born and raised in New York City, you know, they they should probably stick with the subway a lot of times, I got to say. Oh, you see. <laughs> That's so wrong. Although see, I, I'm a big proponent of mass transit. But New York City drivers are excellent drivers because we actually know what we're doing as opposed to, say, Florida drivers who have no idea what's going on. They, can, they can't really see out the windshield or – now, I'm not even going international because I don't know that – I've never driven in a foreign country other than Canada, which is you know a wholly owned subsidiary of the United States. I, I am frightened to drive in Boston. Yeah, yeah, you, sh- you, you should be. Although I will say internationally, um, Europe, especially Germans, excellent, excellent drivers. Apparently, it's difficult to get a driver's license in some places. Right. Well, that's yeah. really true. The yeah. tests in certain other countries. I mean, you just must have read about this woman in Korea who had to take the driving test 960 times. I did not know. I didn't see that. <laughs> no. But so, okay. It's, it's, it seems, uh, you know, people have um, real trouble with paying attention on the road. We see all these things. But then you think, well, why would we possibly give it over to the computers? I mean, you heard about, you know, all the Toyota recalls earlier this year. This seems insane. Um, but what happens is most accidents uh, are, are because of driver error. And now the technology is, is to the point where um, you have devices. I've driven in them. They're, they're amazing. These um, uh, cruise control, which have radar in the front, which allows you to say a certain distance behind the car in front of you. It will speed up and slow down. You have now these uh, lane change um, warning sensors, which are really just little cameras that look on the lanes on the side of the road. And if you're kind of drifting out of the lane because you're, you know, you're late at night, you're tired. These are big for truck drivers. Um, then it'll sound an alarm. It's not hard to attach one of those to your steering wheel and just keep you in the lane. So now you have a device, not just to work the accelerator and the brake, but also the steering wheel. And so you would actually still be driving the car. You just have many more systems that keep you driving it correctly. Uh, yes. You know, the question is, you, you wouldn't go back. It wouldn't be the Jetsons' future of, you know, sitting back and starting to read the paper, although certainly knowing drivers, people do that anyway. They would, oh, yeah. yeah. I've seen that plenty of times, especially in Boston. 
Yeah, and texting is yeah. a big problem. Oh, let's not even get started with that. But, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a huge problem. So this would be more of, in theory, a um, kind of like the autopilot in, a, in an airplane. It's not like the captain and the co-pilot in an airplane go and, and start reading the paper. You know, when they're on autopilot, they're monitoring the systems. They're making sure everything's fine. They're paying attention to what's around them. But, you know, they're, they're not actively working the pedals. So do you think you can – you know, put put your uh, future glasses on and and see what things are going to be like. I mean, thirty years from now, do you think that you'll be driving a car that's pretty much independent of you as the driver? Well, the big problem with this is is human psychology. People like to drive. People like to be in control of their vehicles. I mean, I I certainly I like driving stick shifts because I think it gives me more control over the vehicle. So will people really accept this? Now, you get into a thing where if you have encouragements such as, for instance, um, if you have a special lane on the freeway, which is for vehicles which can kind of run all in a line, um, it, it helps solve a lot of the traffic problems. So if you have these kind of cruise control-like vehicles or if you have vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communication so that uh, the car in back of the car in front knows when the car in front is slowing down or stopping, you could run vehicles closer together. And, and that would also increase their fuel efficiency. It would increase fuel efficiency. It would lead to fewer traffic jams because a lot of traffic jams you have these kind of ampli amplifying effects where a car breaks and the car in back breaks and the car in back breaks and then it kind of ripples out and all the cars are so close together and you have these these humans who are who have bad reflexes and who overcompensate for what, what they see in front of them. So if you have institutional encouragement such as that, and I think that you'll probably see that in other countries before you see it in the U.S., countries such as Japan, which are much more comfortable with technologies such as this, then – Yes, I could see getting on, driving onto the freeway, getting in the lane, taking your hands off of everything and, you know, and then getting off at your designated exit. Maybe you'll see it in China where they have this traffic jam that's apparently been going on for weeks and is going to keep going on for months. That I have seen. You know, and it, it takes some central planning to make these systems work. So, We also recommend getting rid of bunker fuel, which I had never even heard of. Bunker fuel is basically the nastiest stuff on Earth that we burn, and it's burned by cargo ships out on the open ocean. Just to give you an idea of what this stuff is, ordinary diesel gasoline sold for cars in the U.S. is something like 0.00015% sulfur. Sulfur, of course, is the nasty stuff that when combusted makes sulfur dioxide and acid rain and causes respiratory problems, etc., etc. Bunker fuel is 5% sulfur. So you have these ships on the open ocean basically burning the nastiest stuff on Earth. Um, as they come into port, ports like the port of Los Angeles, uh, where you have a strong westerly wind and huge amounts of port traffic, all this burning bunker fuel comes inland, is a huge contri contributor to the smog problem uh, and respiratory problems in, in place like that. And um, finally, there's kind of a movement afoot to not – if not get rid of bunker fuel, to at least clean it up. Uh, in the next few years, they're talking about um, bringing down the sulfur content of the fuel burned close to shore down to 1%, um, which would be a great help. Right now, epidemiologists estimate that uh, bunker fuel leads to premature deaths of 90,000 people each year. And is that people on the ships themselves who are more highly exposed to it, or is that an actuarial kind of averaging that worldwide. The second, the actual actuarial averaging worldwide in terms of respiratory problems. Um, 
smog, you name it. That's really amazing. I mean, 90,000 people. Yeah, from something that no one has ever heard of. You know, the, the thing with bunker fuel in the open oceans is that the open oceans have no rules and regulations. It's uh, law yeah, of the sea. It's law of the sea, which is pretty you know, much do, do whatever you do want. Do what you can get away with, right? And you can get away with a lot. What else do we need to get rid of? Well, one of the things we have to get rid of is gene patents. And this is a kind of active um, issue in in the courts today. It was an interesting story that I uh, never had really heard of um, um, before working on this issue, which was that there there was a prov- um, in the U.S. you couldn't patent kind of a naturally occurring. Uh, organism or, or human part of an organism. Um, but then in 1980, uh, a researcher with IBM um, ended up patenting a microbe that could eat fuel. It could eat petroleum, which, you know, is, is one of these things that we've seen a lot of this this past summer. Uh, he applied for a patent. The court said no. He took it all the way to uh, the patent office said no. He took it all the way to Supreme Court. And he said, well, OK, it's a novel invention. You should be able to patent this thing. OK, well, it was, it was genetically engineered, genetically that, engineered. Right. That's right. Fast forward now in the mid-90s, you have these companies coming up and they are um, basically purifying or extracting and purifying naturally occurring human genes and getting patents on that. So in the case that we discussed in the article, Myriad Genetics of Utah patented what's called the BRCA gene, which is a a gene which – is associated with high rates of breast cancer in women. So now Myriad can charge two people, uh, two groups of people, large amounts of money. One is researchers who want to work with the BRCA gene, um, which again is not an engineered thing. It's something that happens, you know, in, in a percentage of people in the U.S. And they can also charge the women who want to get tested to see if they have this gene a large amount of money. So uh, a case that now is working its way through the courts where a woman who could not afford the test for the gene um, is suing because she thinks that it's uh, you know that's an illegal use of the patent and recently an appeals court has agreed with her and said that it's it's not the case that if you just isolate a gene then you are able to claim ownership of it uh, this case though will probably make its way all the way to the supreme court right that, that's i believe it's judge robert sweet who made that decision who uh has also made some other interesting decisions he was involved in the mcdonald's uh suits maybe seven or eight years ago that I remember writing about in a column. His his decisions make for some fun reading sometimes. If anybody's uh, in law school out there, check out Robert Sweet's writings. One of the interesting things uh, that we could get rid of is daylight savings time, which they did some studies in Indiana where different parts of the state had had different times and it's not really the electricity or, or energy saver that we've been told it is. Yeah, that's right. Um, daylight savings time, of course, was started. You know, the, the idea came back in the late 19th century and was first instituted during World War One in order to um, be an energy saver, which makes sense, especially if most of your energy comes from lighting, right? And uh, we stay up. Um, uh, during the night, during the evening hours, and it would be nice if there was light for longer. Now, in the climate-controlled world, there is a question of having it be lighter for longer outside. Does that negate any benefits you might get for lighting? And in Indiana, as you say, they did kind of a natural experiment. Different parts of the state had um, different daylight savings times rules, and researchers kind of did a 
um, a study of energy use in those different parts of the state. And they said that daylight savings time is pretty much a wash. And if anything, it might use a little more electricity than it saves. Because people use their air conditioners more. Exactly, because people use their air conditioners more. And uh, we, you know, when it's 9 o'clock at night and you're, it's light outside and your air conditioner is running in July, then um, daylight savings time is probably not helping your energy usage. Now, it was, it was, uh, for me, it was, um, it was very difficult to include this one in the in the in the package because I happen to love daylight savings time. Personally. Sure, who doesn't like it to be light at nine o'clock at night? Yeah, exactly. And I'm you know I I don't wake up before sunrise like a farmer does, so it uh, it's it's just it's just gravy to me. Well, that shows your journalistic objectivity that you were able to force yourself to include this. Let the, the science speak for itself. Marriott, why don't we uh, just very quickly talk about some of the other things in the issue, and, uh, and then we can talk about our 50, 100, and 150 years ago column. So, Steve, yeah, one of the, one of the things we haven't talked about, and I know I I think you're you're speaking with a few other folks about some of the stories in the issue. Um, one of them I mentioned a little earlier, which is about human biology. Why can't we live forever? And it talks about what the efforts are ongoing efforts to see if we can extend human lifespan is an interesting one. We talk about the end of the universe. What if time should unravel and end? That's yes. a lovely article by we'll George Musser. I'll the, be talking to George right. about that for, here, for the listeners. Heretofore mentioned uh, Mars editor. And uh, an interesting piece that we Mars did. Bureau Mars editor. Mars Bureau editor. <laughs> an interesting piece that we have at the at the end of the feature well is is about what comes next. So I mentioned at the beginning of our our chat um, today that endings are often uh, a way to or or an opportunity to, uh, toward a new beginning. And so we went to Scientific American's board of advisors and said to them, "Hi, folks. What you know." These are some of the most preeminent scientists in the in the world today. And we said to them, what do you see ending and what beginnings are you seeing? And we got a variety of really interesting responses, some of which we were very happy to, to add to this issue. For instance, one of them, a piece by um, Danny Hillis that leads off the section, he's the co-founder of the Long Now Foundation, talks about the age of digital entanglement. And that, what does that mean? Well, that means... Nowadays, whenever you there's there's no single siloed device anymore. We're all very interconnected through the internet, and while that's brought us great benefits, if the internet should be pulled down, say by a cyber attack or, or something, our entangled existence would mean that that's very very disruptive. So, actually, in his short item, Danny outlines this problem and also explains, you know, now that we've ended the you know, the era of the siloed computer and they're all interconnected in the entanglement, he sort of calls for some simple systems that we could use as backups because, hey, the old days had some good elements to them as well. That's and, one example. And he mentions, as in all good apocalyptic sci-fi, the ham radio operators will come to the rescue. <laughs> I love the ham radio operators. And, you know, this year, of course, there was that huge news when uh, Craig Venter announced the making of a synthetic life form. Now, what does that mean? In this instance, it means lots of things, actually. But in this instance, he, he took a um, an engineered piece of, of DNA that had been replicated and inserted it in a mycoplasm uh, bacteria. And Arthur Kaplan, who's a member of our board and a bioethicist at the University of Pennsylvania, wrote about, you know, what – 
what does this mean? This is the end of natural biology. Now we are into you know synthetic biology where humans have greater control than ever over life around them and our ability to manipulate life can can be fairly said to be unequaled in all of humankind's time before. What does that mean? So so this you know, this was a, a collection of items that looked at endings that mean beginnings and what we might do about those. And one of our board of advisors is a former director of the CIA. Yes. <laughs> That's true. Our James Woolsey, who who now is chair of Woolsey Partners, uh, he is a former director of the CIA and he wrote about um, energy that, you know, now we're, we're ending an era. We were just talking about bunker fuel, a horrible bunker fuel, and and we've long bemoaned the, the problems of using coal and other kinds of energy. So his, his item talks about energy that is not harmful to your health. So maybe we'll end the era of energy sources that have consequences like 90,000 people dying a year from bunker fuel um, outpourings and eventually get to a world of sort of more sane energy provided uh, by by means that are non-toxic to humans. It's very interesting to consider that that's currently what's on the mind of a former CIA director. Not to put too fine a point on it, but energy security is really part of what's, you know, at odds here. So in security in a couple of dimensions, one is protection of Americans and humans in general, which I can imagine a CIA director would, of course, be interested in. The other is, as we've often spoken about in, you know, in public circles, energy independence means that you are less susceptible to hostile interests. So one other that I kind of like in this, in this column is everybody walks around with this three-pound organ in our heads called the brain, and we use this thing every day, but we don't really understand how it produces the consciousness that we all take for granted. I mean, it, on the one hand, consciousness is such a familiar thing. Everybody experiences it. On the other hand, we have no idea how it works. So one of the other things that uh, – this is Christoph Koch, who is a computational neuroscientist at Caltech, wrote an item about an end of our non-understanding of consciousness, and he sees some of the new tools looking forward on that. One of them that he talked about, which I think is so fascinating, is something called optogenetics. This is the idea of inserting a gene – into cells, and that gene is light-controlled so that you can then use light to manipulate the the, um, the cell. So it could be switched on or off, and you could get, maybe we could, through doing such experiments, a better understanding of how consciousness arises from this network of a billion cells and their cellular activity in the brain. Who's going to volunteer for that? <laughs> so far, mice and rats. <laughs> <laughs> volunteer being With loosely interpreted. <laughs> so this is the issue, the end. It's not really the end of the issues, though. And speaking of not being the end, we'll go back to closer to the beginning. And uh, back, you know, we have the 50, 100, 150 years ago section every month. Back in September 1860, Scientific American had an article, and I quote from that article, a paper has just been published in England on the capture of whales by the means of poison, the agent being hydrocyanic or prussic acid. The subtle poison was contained in glass tubes in quantity about two ounces, secured to a harpoon. Messrs. W. and G. Young sent a quantity of these harpoons to one of their ships engaged in the Greenland fishery, and on meeting with a fine whale, the harpoon was skillfully and buried deep in his body. The Leviathan immediately sounded or dived perpendicularly downward. 
It, but in a very short time, the rope relaxed and the whale rose to the surface quite dead. The men were so appalled by the terrific effect of the poisoned harpoon that they declined to use any more of them, <laughs> which is understandable. If a small dose like that took down a whale, I guess all of them realized, gee, I better stay as far away from this stuff as possible. Or speaking of endings, you know, maybe it was Scientific American sort of hint of the first call for no whaling. It's one other thing from uh, September 1860. A lady in an omnibus at Washington espied. We don't use the word espied. I like the word espied. It's like egads. We should say egads, espied. Egads. And 23 skidoo. Let me put in a vote for that one. I always uh, love 23 skidoo. Well, we should have that at the end of every article to let the reader know that the article's done and they can leave now. 23 skidoo. So a lady in an omnibus at Washington espied the great unfinished dome of the Capitol and said innocently, I suppose those are the gas works? Yes, madam, for the nation, was the reply of a fellow passenger. And you Yes, know, the gas works for the nation, and now they are roaring. They continue to roar. Long may they roar. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, relaxing the ban on DDT could provide a powerful weapon in the fight against resurgent bed bugs. Story two, after a psychic claimed that crocodiles at a sanctuary in Belize had killed two missing children, a mob destroyed the sanctuary. Story three, money can buy some happiness and the amount of money you need in the U.S. is on average $75,000 a year. And story four, undergrads said they were more likely to give positive reviews to a professor with tattoos than to a tat-free prof. Time's up. Story four is true. A study of 128 students found that they were more likely to give positive ratings to their tattooed professors. The students viewed pictures of a woman with and without the tats, and their scores in nine areas indicate that they thought with skinning she'd be a better teacher, she'd be a more imaginative lecturer, and they'd be more motivated and more likely to recommend her. The study appeared in the journal Psychological Reports. Story three is true. Indeed, $75,000 a year seems to be the magic number right now for happiness. That's according to a survey published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. People's ratings of their own contentment rose until they were bringing in about 75000 a year. But further increases in income did not increase happiness. And people aren't as excited about raises after they've hit the seventy-five k mark either. And story two is sadly true. On September 5th, the mob destroyed the American Crocodile Education Sanctuary in Belize. A self-professed psychic claimed that two missing children who are still missing had been fed to the crocs. The so-called psychic has been charged with fraud, which could be done by definition. All of which means that story one about DDT against bedbugs is totally bogus. A Newsweek story explains that bedbugs had grown tolerant of DDT before it was even banned. The story also quotes a Cornell entomologist as saying that in a study of numerous pesticides just in the last couple of years, DDT was the worst one tested against bedbugs. Another bug expert said that the most effective treatment is to take a pesticide can and actually slam the bedbug with it. (laughs) 
Well, that's it for this episode. Get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out John Horgan's take on Stephen Hawking's latest book, The Grand Design. Follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.